0: Coming up on this week's show, Emma Scott joins us to talk about her book, Someday, Someday. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the
1: latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 239 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from WillCanals.com, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community in just a few moments, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. We'll have that for you at the end of the show. Welcome everyone. Hope you made it through the week okay. We did just fine. Yeah, we did. We got to celebrate an anniversary at the end of the week. So that was really good for us.
0: Happy 25th, Mr. Husband.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: (laughs) It's the top of the month, and that
1: means we have a brand new book club selection. The book club pick for the month of May is going to be Claire London's Romancing the Rough Diamond. This is, in fact, a delightful little gem of a book. I am so glad that this is the one that we chose. It's sweet and endearing. I love the two heroes so much, and you'll be able to hear about how much I love the two of them on the book club episode, which is now available to our Patreon community. Now, early access to our book club episodes is just one of the perks available to our Patreon community. If you'd like to know more about what you get when you sign up and hang out with all the cool kids, you can find out more at patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. The book club episode for Claire London's Romancing the Rough Diamond will be available in the normal podcast feed on May 26th. Yes, the last Tuesday of the month, right after Memorial Day.
0: We want to give a special shout out to Friends of the Podcast and fellow Frolic Podcast members, Kelsey and Zoe, over at T and Struppets. In this past week's episode, number 33, they do a deep dive on KJ Charles's 2018 Regency Romance, Band Sinister. I listen to the show. They are a delight as always. And I now want to read this book. <laughs> they really sold me on this book. So if you've read, Band Sinister and want to hear their deep dive on it, check out T and Strumpets episode 33. Or if you want to check out what that book's about, so maybe it gets on your TBR, you can also check that episode out. And we'll have a link in the show notes, of course, for that. Also, this past week, we got an email from some longtime listeners who are also husbands, William Huggett and Ron Holt. Now, these two make coloring books. They have a wonderful pride coloring book that's available as a free PDF on their website. It's got some geometric shapes to color, along with some nice affirming messages of love and acceptance, and they're making it free to everyone. So if coloring is something you enjoy, you might want to check that out. And William and Ron are also both doctors, and they have now designed a coloring book for healers as well, which is free to print out, or they'll actually send a paperback free to any healthcare provider. Such a wonderful thing these two are doing. We're happy to give them a shout out on the show for it. And especially for what they're doing for those of the medical profession who may need a moment of peace and creativity in these times. We will have links to these coloring books in the show notes for you.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Becky Feldman here. And I am too stupid to live. And do you want to hear something crazy? I also host a comedy podcast called Too Stupid to Live. How did that happen? I have no idea. Um, anyway, on to stupid to live. I am joined by some hilarious guests where we review romance novels, $5 and under, and we have covered the gamut of romantic fiction from historical romances to dinosaur erotica, which, you know what? Now that, now that I think about it, I think that's like also a historical romance. Um, Anyway, each episode, we go on this engaging journey. Um, I've had Sarah McLean, the fabulous author, talking about the power of romance to Nick Weiger of the Doughboys podcast, reading a sexy excerpt in the voice of Elizabeth Holmes. That one still gives me very sexy nightmares, but I just can't get enough. Um, So TSTL puts out two episodes a month, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So before we get to this week's book review segment, I want to quickly talk about three different documentaries Jeff and I watched. And they're all about people and places important to gay history. The first one I want to talk about is Studio 54, the documentary. And this obviously tells the story of the infamous Studio 54, probably the world's most famous discotheque. It charts the history of the club that was created by Steve Robel and Ian Schrager. And what sets this documentary apart is it really is the very first time that Ian Schrager has sat down with someone and told his side of the story in such depth. They detail his and Steve's friendship in college, how they started up their business, the insane and unexpected success of Studio 54 and its eventual downfall. It's a really interesting and detailed look, not only at a place, but a very specific time in history, mainly the very late 70s.
0: I found it very fascinating as well because you you look at the 70s and just the chaos of what these two created between the celebrities that they managed to draw into the place and the quote unquote regular people who got to get in and even the throngs of people who were desperate to get in, who couldn't get in that eventually kind of led to some of the backlash against the disco in the first place. And at least as I heard Ian's story and some of the friends that were around them, I don't think they ever meant to create the disaster that 54 became. It was more like they were just trying to get by and they kind of, I don't think they deliberately set out to break some of the laws that they did, but it was more like oh, this is kind of working for us, so we're going to keep going. And then, oh, damn, we got caught, and now it's all going to just go to hell. (laughs) It was an interesting study and far more than any 54 history that I've ever seen before. And it was a really interesting look at the whole the era, the building itself, knowing some of the history of the the building that 54 was in and what it's become since. Just really, really uh, good documentary that I'm glad we watched.
1: Also something we watched this past week was Cherry Grove Stories, which is a surprisingly personal documentary because it is in fact told from the viewpoint of the very personal stories and accounts of the people who live on Fire Island. They talk about the history of the Fire Island Pines, essentially how people came to live there and how it ended up becoming a gay community. What happened during the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s, and where Cherry Grove stands now as a location that is so deeply steeped in gay history?
0: There was history there that I never realized. I mean, I, I've known people who go to Fire Island and they go and they hang out on the weekend and they come back to the city, and there are some who, you know, spend the summer on Fire Island. But the deep history and how it became, what it became was really fascinating to me. It's always been a bit of a regret, but even more so now having seen the documentary that while we lived so very close to it, we never set foot on Fire Island once in the 15 years we lived in New York City. Maybe if we're back in the city sometime in the summer, we can take a quick little trip over there and at least walk around and check out the history for ourselves because that was a really fascinating
1: documentary. And of course, no movie about Cherry Grove would be complete without the very personal stories of the Meat Rack, one of the most infamous cruising spots probably on the entire planet. It's <laughs> the stories of the fun and the parties and what this specific place has meant to so many people is really wonderful and important. I'm so glad that the people, the directors and the producers who are behind this particular show uh, actually took the time to speak to people about this particular place and its special meaning. Yeah, it's really good to have this piece of history captured on
0: film like this uh, because some of these people have been around there for like some 50 years and it's
1: good to capture their story while they're still here to tell it. And last but not least, we checked out Circus of Books, the new documentary that recently dropped on Netflix about the legendary porno store in West Hollywood. Gosh, this was so, so interesting. It's about a very nice suburban Jewish couple named Karen and Barry Mason, and how through a certain series of events, they ended up owning Circus of Books, a prominent LA porno store, and by extension, ended up being one of the biggest distributors of gay porn in the U.S. This documentary was directed by their daughter and it's a look at these two remarkable individuals and how they just so ended up happen to run this store and how it ended up becoming their family business and the sort of the the push and the pull between their personal and professional lives and how they struggled for decades to keep those two things separate. It was really interesting, which may be an obvious thing to say if someone went to the trouble of filming a documentary about these two people. But but I thought it showed some remarkable insight into not only what this store meant to the community in LA, but also who these two people were to the community during the height of the AIDS crisis. I found the whole
0: story very engrossing and and seeing how they went from owning a bookstore to becoming this mammoth distributor to getting into gay porn films and distributing those and the eventual downfall of the store and how the internet and the recession really you know pivoted their fortunes i felt so bad for karen through this because while she had this business that she worked to grow and make successful and keep it successful for her family and her employees. She never really seemed to like what she was doing (laughs) to be honest, but she was doing it anyway because it was her business. And also the, the impact of the family on owning this particular store and how, when the kids were little, they tried to hide what the store was. So they wouldn't, you know, maybe not have friends to play with and stuff, but then how it, you know, it impacted them as they grew older too. Really a fascinating piece of work, and even more so because the daughter filmed it, because there are times you can tell that Karen's not too thrilled that this documentary is being made, and yet it's going to stand as a testament to their life's work, which was really important and pivotal to certain aspects of the gay porn
1: industry. Now, if you're interested in any of these documentaries, they are all available to stream or rent at all the regular places, particularly Netflix and Amazon on Prime. Cool. Some things to watch as you are continuing to be stuck indoors. Talking
0: about some books, one of my very favorite authors, Layla Rain, has a new book out this week called Variable Onset. Now, you may remember back in the romantic suspense discussion that we had with Layla, Gregory Ash, and L.A. Witt back in episode 217, she talked about a book she was working on that included a forensic genealogist. And that book is, in fact, Variable Onset. Now, you all know that I'm a big fan of Lila's brand of romantic suspense, and boy, she knocked it out of the park again with this story of a second chance, fake relationship, romance set with the backdrop of catching a notorious serial killer. We get introduced to forensic genealogist Lincoln Monroe and his field of expertise right away as he's teaching a class at Quantico. Now, I love this dual look at both Lincoln, who is a bisexual agent who's divorced with a teenage daughter and who's been out of the field for a few years, now preferring to teach, and his speciality. The art of looking for details to pin down facts was absolutely fascinating to me, such as looking at elements in a picture to determine when it was taken. The FBI director arrives at the end of class to tell him he's going back into the field. Dr. Fear, who's a notorious serial killer who diagnoses his subject's fear and then proceeds to kill them using that fear, is back in action and has taken the family of Senator Oliver Kirk. Now, Oliver is a former FBI agent who previously worked on this case years ago. As Lincoln is sent back out into the field, he finds out that his partner is going to be a former Quantico student of his who made him bristle in class, Carter Warren. Now these two were attracted to each other back in those class days and that just adds a new layer of baggage for them now. From the get go, I loved everything about Lincoln and Carter. From the moment Lincoln arrives in the small town of Apex to begin his assignment, he discovers the house he's going to be sharing with Carter is full of people because of a housewarming party. Most of the town of Apex is in attendance and it's only when he walks in the door that he finds out that his cover is that he and Carter are married. This is hilarious, the, the tizzy that this puts Lincoln into. But it's also kind of touching because there's an instant spark that's kind of restored to these guys as they have to play the part. And boy, do they sell it too. Now they've got a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it because Dr. Fear always operates on a schedule and that means there is a ticking time clock here on them to recover the Senator's family. But there's more going on too because Carter is also looking for information about his parents. He knows he's adopted, and he's discovered over the years that it appears that his parents were killed near Apex. And on top of it all, there's also the distinct possibility that Dr. Fear has lured both Carter and Lincoln to Apex to turn them into victims. Now, to find out what all is happening here, Lincoln ends up going to work in the archives at the local university library, and Carter is supposed to be doing some work with the local police department to train them. Now It puts them right where they need to be, and they're only helped more because the entire town has managed to fall in love with them and their cover story. But that's also going to turn into some hindrances too. The investigation had me hooked from the very beginning. Layla does an amazing job of showing the investigation and showing what Lincoln and Carter are doing to track down the killer through years of archives, talking to the townsfolk, and trying to piece all this puzzle together. There's a perfect balance between the ins and outs of the forensics, the suspense and associated action, and the romance itself. And oh, what a wonderful romance it is. Using a fake relationship like this inside of a romantic suspense just worked so well. Their fake relationship grew so organically almost from the time that they showed up together in Apex and then working through it. They went from kisses and touches that were necessary for the cover to actually comforting each other after stressful days, which kind of naturally led to more kissing. So there was never an instance here where like in some romantic suspense that we see where there's almost a pause in the action to give the make out moment. Everything was so intrinsically bound together that it just made it work so well. Now the Dr. Fear case certainly took its toll on both of them to get it wrapped up. And of course, I'm not gonna spoil how all that happens here. But as often is the case with Layla's work, I so stressed in the final act of the book, wondering how on earth this was going to wrap up and end in an EGA. Which of course it did, that's not a spoiler, and it was so wonderful. I loved everything about Variable Onset, from the core romance to the case that had to be solved. The citizens of Apex were quirky delights, getting a little insight into Lincoln's family was wonderful. While this is released as a standalone, I really hope that we get to revisit Carter and Lincoln somehow. Maybe they can all get worked into the whiskey verse somehow. And I'd really like to see more about this forensic genealogy too, because I really enjoyed that aspect of piecing the crime together. So highly recommend Variable Onset, which is out this week. One other thing I wanna quickly mention, uh, we periodically talk about children's books on the show when we find something that's truly wonderful. And this week's release of the one and only Dylan St. Clair definitely fits that bill. Written by Cayman Edwards and illustrated by Jeffrey Ebler, this book focuses on Dylan as he's preparing to audition for the school play. Uh, It's a musical about outer space and Dylan very, 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 I can't emphasize very enough here, badly wants to play the star, you know, the big star twinkling up in the sky. He wants to be a star playing a star and he is ready for his audition but he's kind of devastated to find out there aren't in fact auditions that the entire class has already been cast by the teacher and he ends up as the astronaut squirrel and you know he's he's kind of down about that because it's really not what he imagined himself being but as he embraces what a great part the squirrel actually is he discovers the silver lining there and is able to go out and make the absolute most of it I have to say this book was so wonderfully sweet because not only does it show Dylan kind of figuring out with the help of his friends and his teacher how to turn this role into awesomeness, but Dylan is also soulful of life. He is every bit the the drama musical theater kid who's just out there living his life exactly how he wants to do it. He's boisterous. He loves musicals, he loves theater, and he isn't really gonna be deterred on that love by anyone. This book also has some really wonderful musical theater Easter eggs in it too, such as Dylan's drama teacher being named Mrs. Lovett. And for those of you who don't know, that's the pie maker in Sweeney Todd. So there's a lot of other stuff in there that I won't spoil in the review either. The overall vibe of this book reminds me of the middle grade Nate series by Tim Federell uh, about a theater kid who gets his big break on Broadway. I can see Dylan growing up to be very much like Nate. Cayman Edwards has penned a delightful story that's really all about being out there, being yourself and, and being the person you want to be. And Jeffrey Ebler's beautiful drawings have just made the story come to life. So if you've got a child in your life and want to give them a fun book that affirms that you can be whoever you want to be and to look for that silver lining, the one and only Dylan St. Clair is perfect. Or if you happen to be like me and you love to get books that simply didn't exist when you were a kid, this'll be a great
1: one for you. If you're interested in learning about these books or anything else that we've talked about on this week's show, you know what to do. Just go to the show notes page for episode 239 at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Want to hang out with us between shows? check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post, news about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at facebook.com slash big gay fiction podcast and see what we get up to next.
0: So a few weeks ago, I reviewed the book Someday Someday by Emma Scott, and I was really excited to get the chance to talk to her about this really deeply interesting book about two very broken men who found their happily ever after and the power to you know start to work through some of their demons because of that love. It's a very interesting story how she came up with the book and how she approached what was in it. And I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Emma, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It's really an honor. Thank you.
0: I've been looking forward to talking to you about Someday Someday. I reviewed it back in episode 234, and I loved Max and Silas's story so, so much. Tell our listeners, in, in your words, what this story is about.
3: Oh, boy. That's sort of like the dreaded writing of the blurb for a book where you try to <laughs> sum it up. Well, I think for me, it's about Max and Silas. Max is a he's an ER nurse who had a kind of a rough childhood. He was kicked out of his house as a teenager by his father for being gay and he subsequently had a kind of a rough life on the streets for a little while after that but he pulled himself up went through nursing school and he became an NA sponsor and Silas he is the son of a pharmaceutical dynasty like a multi-billion pharmaceutical dynasty and he also had a not wonderful childhood in the sense that his father sent him to a very brutal conversion therapy camp and so when Max is, gets kind of burnt out being in the ER, he goes to work for Silas's father to take care of him as a personal nurse. And then Max and Silas meet, and I feel like they, they kind of go through their healing process together in the, as they're going through the process of falling in love at the same time.
0: Which is a good way to put it. And I understand what you mean about <laughs> trying to blurb the book. Even reviewing it, because there's so many components to this story, it's hard to kind of encapsulate it in a succinct sort of way.
3: And I don't want to be like, and then there's this person in Faith and this, and then then overwhelm someone. They're like, I don't know who you're talking about. Like, what is this? So, yeah. So essentially, I think that's, if I had to boil it down to, it is that sense of the two characters healing themselves through the, not fixing each other, but becoming healed through the love for each other. And that's kind of a theme I have in a a lot of the books that I
0: write. Mm -hmm. And I liked how they weren't necessarily fixed at the end, but you knew they were certainly on a better journey because of their happily ever after, that they were going to find more peace as they kept going.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah, they weren't just, okay, everything's magically put back together, but they're definitely, as you said, took a huge leap forward in the process and just overcoming a lot of the obstacles that they had had, the mental and personal obstacles that they had had before.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. What was your inspiration for this story because it seems like with all these components it could have been a lot of things that fell into this book.
3: Well, it actually started out with Max. He was a the best friend of a heroine in another book and I just fell in love with him. The readers fell in love with him. He's such a kind and compassionate character and I always knew that he would eventually have his own story, it was just a matter of when. And he's a recovering addict. And so I was reading this book called Dope Sick by, oh, I'm going to forget her name, Beth somebody. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it talks about the opioid epidemic that is, you know, that's been raging in this country for the past I oh, 15 years or so. And I, I was reading it just as kind of for research on what maybe Max had been going through. And it really became eye-opening to me about how much of a, how, you know, what a serious epidemic it was and how the addicts were being treated more like criminals instead of the pharmaceutical companies that were perpetrating the drug out. And so I figured I had to incorporate that somehow. It felt kind of irresponsible not to, now that I knew about it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and so it just kind of grew from there. And the more research I did, the more it kind of fed the particular plot of the book. And then I brought in Silas as the, the heir apparent of this dynasty of pharmaceuticals, and he wants to fix the issue. and curb his company's you know evil wrongdoings and it just kind of kind of snowballed from there
0: how much research had to go into all of it you mentioned reading that that one book but there are other topics in this story too that i imagine needed a fair amount of research
3: yeah like there's silas's brother has asperger's and so that required a tremendous amount of research because i never want to portray anybody inauthentically and especially with the character as important as Eddie was I wanted to make sure that I had gotten it right so to speak so I did a lot of research on that front to see you know to make sure that like I said I was being authentic to him and then there's also conversion therapy that Silas has gone through so for that I did a lot of research and that I did mostly reading personal accounts that of people who had actually gone through it because I wanted to get like their firsthand like the sensations and the feelings and the really deeply personal experiences that they were willing to share, you know, so bravely with us, I wanted to incorporate that as honestly and truthfully as I could as well. So those three things, the opioid epidemic, <laughs> the Asperger's, and the conversion therapy, those are the primary bolts of the research. Although I don't consider Eddie to be that heavy of a, of a of a character necessarily, only the weight of wanting to be authentic and get it right. But I, I think he... I don't know. I just, I just had, to, I loved him so much. And I, I think he's more of a buoyant character than anything of the weightier topics that we have going on in the book.
0: And I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you've got two supporting characters, one with Eddie and one surprisingly with Silas's, we'll just call her the fake girlfriend with Faith yeah. who brings such a, for lack of a better word, I think a lightness, to the mm-hmm. story, they're rays of light when they're there. And it's it's great how you kind of tilted some of the heavy with these characters and especially Eddie who really kind of cuts through Silas's and Max's like apprehension around each other because he sees yeah. what needs to happen from the get-go.
3: <laughs> He's like, come on guys, you're wasting time. Like what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, Yeah, and I love that you said that with Faith too because you know, Faith started out when I first thought of her she came to me as like your your tropey typical kind of like gold digging, harpy, kind of like an enemy of stylus who was gonna cause even more problems because if she wasn't getting her way with, you know, as he progressed and like realized he was in love with Max and was breaking up their union or whatever. But she instead I was like, That's so boring and that's so it's done before and it's not and they need we do need the ray of light. And but more than that, it wasn't even a conscious decision. She just kind of came forth. As like no, I'm fun. I'm an ally, and I yes, I am a gold digger. She's unapologetic about that, but she's not like she has still has a heart, and mm-hmm. she still has you know sensitivities. And when she sees that her relationship with Silas, which she was fine with it when she thought there was nothing at stake, when she thought that he was like either asexual or just shut down completely, but when she realizes he has feelings for Max, she's like, well, then what we have cannot go forward. And I I really love that she came through that way and i say this like she's her own person like i didn't create it that way i know that might sound weird but i know a lot of authors probably and you probably know this yourself the characters just are who they are and you can try to force them to be something but it doesn't always work that way and so i had this one idea of her and she just burst out into something completely different and i love that she is who she is instead
0: yeah, her trajectory. Because even when you first meet her, I, I'm kind of like, mm, she's going to be that person, that tropey character that you described <laughs> and then you find out relatively quickly that she's not. You know, right. she's she's fine playing the role she's been cast in, but she's also fine leaving that behind.
3: Right. So long as she gets her big apartment in Queens Anne, then she's good to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and And Eddie, I tell you, I mean the way he is from the very beginning that we meet him he's just he's a delightful character, and he he's part of their healing journey too for Max and Silas
3: so happy to read the reviews that said that he was such a light for them as well, for the readers as well, and that he was so well loved and that was not only a huge validation of just you know him as a as a character, but as I said about making sure that him having Asperger's and being authentic to that experience was really, you know, I had done him justice so to speak. And so, yeah, he's, he's wonderful. And like I just love how I could put anything like his, like love of David Copperfield or his love of literature. I could just kind of just put it all through him and he, and let him be artistic in the way that Silas and Max necessarily are not. So I'm, I, I mean, Silas has his piano playing, but he's not emotive, like in poetry and words and, Clearly, he's not a romantic that way. So Yeah,
0: and Eddie got a complete arc, just like Faith did. They weren't just, you know, side characters who were just sort of kind of along for the ride. They got their own finale moment, which was yeah. really awesome.
3: <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I try, I try to do that. If, there, if the character has, you know, such an important role to play, then I want to make sure they're, you know, they're not kind of left in the dirt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> were you ever concerned about... Putting too much into this book in terms of the issues you were kind of looking at here.
3: Yeah, I was, and I I tried my hardest to keep the opioid like data kind of from overwhelming certain like certain scenes. I scaled back. I mean, I could have said a whole lot more. I was trying not to make it preachy. I didn't want it to make it like a treatise on the whole situation or like a thesis paper, you know. But I really wanted to get enough facts out there so that people could understand what was really happening because I had no idea I didn't know until I started doing the research that it was as serious as it was I'd heard about it of course but I had no idea how bad it was and I had no idea how much the pharmaceutical industry played a role in perpetuating it and I really wanted that out and I want and same with the conversion therapy I in the course of my research I was thinking Am I like 10 years too late? Is this really still happening? And I was just heartbroken to hear that it still does. And so not to the extent that I have it in in Alaska necessarily, but the emotional effects are just as brutal to the people who are still experiencing it. And so I was like, okay, I I don't want to overwhelm the book with this, but I really want people to know that these things are happening and they need to stop. And so hopefully this is my contribution sort of to that end. So I did try to scale it back, but I wanted to keep, be truthful to it, not kind of skim on the surface at the same time. Mm-hmm.
0: And and that's certainly the way that it it played out. I never felt like I got too much, and just yeah, your balancing act between the love story and these other things was a was just well played out through it because nothing seemed too heavy.
3: Thank you. <laughs> that was a concern.
0: What do you hope people get from this story?
3: Well, I do. I do hope, like I said, that they have what for one thing personal on a personal note i do have readers who who have approached me and said uh, with regards to the opioid crisis saying thank you for kind of shining a light on this because from an addictive perspective an addict's perspective they have been demonized and criminalized so much and i don't think there's a greater understanding that there's an actual you know chemical changes that happen in the brain when these when these drugs are introduced where the person's really not in charge anymore and so it's easy to say oh you should just get over it and go to Rehab and just pull yourself up and get over it when there's actual science or you know chemistry involved that makes that very very difficult And so I wanted people to kind of have that understanding again with not hitting them over the head with it and not overwhelming a romance novel With that sort of thing, but I also feel like a romance novel is it's about love Which is like the most powerful universal? experience and emotion that we all that there is and so if you're gonna write a book about that, which is already so important and like just, I don't know, like universal. It's, to me, it makes sense that other serious issues that can be helped with love or not helped, but I'm trying to say the right word, serious issues and serious life experiences that people are struggling with, how love impacts that and how, it, how that's what's needed and how much how much they need and how much they need to feel accepted and how much they need to love themselves. To me, that all kind of goes hand in hand. So that's why I think most of my novels deal with more heavier subjects because to me, the best or the, one of the ways to kind of move through anything that's very difficult is with love in whatever aspect it can take for you. So, mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned that you, you deal in these kinds of topics a lot in your books. Does that mean that you're kind of lean more towards plotting out how everything's going to run together or are you able to tie all this through as, as a discovery writer?
3: It's kind of both. I find that I start with a generalized outline and then to try to keep myself at least on track, especially in the beginning, because the beginning it's is always the hardest. It's so hard to get those first like 20,000 words done. But then I find that either the research or just in the act of writing the characters, the scenes start to expand and they start to go in different directions that I hadn't thought. And so I have to really make sure that I, I'm, I'm like open to that and not too rigid and not stick to an outline or else I'll just frustrate myself and it, it doesn't work. So I try to like let it flow, but I do need a little bit of structure in the beginning or I can't get it focused.
0: Makes sense, yeah. What got you started as a writer and as a romance writer? <laughs>
3: Well, funny enough, I started writing fantasy. Fantasy was my number one thing. Since I was a kid, I was reading Dragonlance and Tolkien and writing my own really crappy versions of their books. (laughs) Like, trying to, like, you know, I had, like, even orcs, you know, but different kind of works. Like, but I always thought I was going to be a fantasy novelist. And I wrote a fantasy, huge fantasy opus, and then it's no good. So I chucked it and I wrote another one. I mean, we're talking millions of words. And then I... I wrote, I was involved in a bunch of like magazine articles and contests. And this one contest said, okay, you, here's, we're going to give you your genre and your object in the location. And one of the genres was romance. And so I had to write a story that had romance in it. And I realized that not only did I love doing that, but I realized that all of my fantasy I've been writing too, had a central romance at its heart that everything kind of else revolved around. They weren't straight, like, you know, action, adventure type, fantasies they are definitely romance oriented so I realized I kind of had been doing that all along so I just shift focus then and went straight into the into the
0: romance looking at your backlist it's it's primarily contemporary did you just pivot fully into contemporary
3: yeah basically and I did actually write one I took one of my fantasy novels that I had been on the back burner kind of and I resurrected it a little bit and i I beefed up the romance aspect a little bit more. And I did publish that, but I pulled it from the market kind of quickly thereafter because I realized it's like, a, it's going to be about seven books and it was really not fair. I felt to throw out one book and then have readers wait like years basically mm-hmm. for the next one. And so I'm, I am I I've put it aside until I can kind of get caught up and maybe write a few more.
0: So there's, there's more fantasy in your future there somewhere.
3: I think so and it's just also I feel like whatever I'm called to write like that's what I have to do like I've had books that I've started and, and I've even announced and I've had to abandon and just be honest with the readers and just say this is not where I'm going right now like or not where like events in the world might change and, and then it changes what I'm trying to say and so like you know in 2016 I was going to write this book about like a photojournalist in the war and then things in 2016 weren't so hot for me as so I was like well let's I don't want to write about war anymore and so I just kind of had to backtrack. So I go wherever the energy you know, leads me to go.
0: Mm-hmm. And rolling back even further, because you were writing these fantasy works, what was kind of your your spark to to pick up the pen and write?
3: There's two things, I think. One was when I was just a kid, I've always just wanted to read. I was doing a lot of reading, and I would write stories to go with that. And I think that kind of just goes hand in hand if, you know, a lot of times if you read as much, you start to end up wanting to tell your own stories as well. But then I never, I didn't pursue it in college. I pursued theater arts instead and acting and never did anything with it. And and then I had other various jobs and a career and travel and yada yada. But then one day, this sounds really weird. I was on fanfiction.net and there was, uh, I was playing this Star Wars role-playing game called Knights of the Old Republic. So it's this old star wars it's not about like luke and leia's older star wars time frame and it was a really great game but it ended very badly and so i wrote a fan fiction about they gave it a better ending and it just kept going and going and going and going and going and i realized as i would post a chapter i got so involved and i would post a chapter and then like i would get all this feedback and i realized that i could write people would read it and they would you know not everybody loved it of course but a lot of people did and it was kind of like this weird validation of something i'd always wanted to do and finally i just did it and it was like sitting there you know right in front of my face and so i don't know i i think to be a writer sometimes you need sometimes it feels like you need permission someone needs to say yes you can do this before you say i am a writer and like i don't agree with that but that's how most that's how it went for me i didn't feel mm-hmm. like i could call myself that until i actually started doing that and getting the feedback and I thought, well, maybe this is something I can actually do. And so from there, that's when I started the contests and the magazine articles or magazine subscriptions and stuff like that. So kind of thank you, fanfiction.net. Who's to say <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't pay off. <laughs> so many people hate it. <laughs>
0: right. And I love how your impetus to, you know, go forth and kind of publish the first time was to fix an ending that you hated. Cause I think so okay. many of us have endings that we just hate
3: Yeah, It was called resolutions. It was like, it was even that more in your face. It was like, your resolutions suck. Here's a better one. <laughs> it's terrible.
0: <laughs> now, Someday Someday is your first MM book in about a dozen books that you've got out there. What was it that inspired you to go MM for this one? Was Max always destined to be gay in that original book?
3: Yeah, he was uh, definitely from the beginning. I feel like our world is diverse, and so it makes sense to have characters that reflect that. And so I have char- characters in many books that are gay or people of color. And I, he was just he was one of those characters, but he's so just something about him just really stood out to me and to the readers as well. And I just, like I said, I always knew he would have a story. It was just a matter of when. And so when it came that time, when I don't know, whatever the muse or the energy said, okay, now it's time for Max's story. I just, it was pretty easy to just go ahead and, and do that. It wasn't like, okay, well now here is in a marketing way. I'm going to try an m MMM. or It wasn't like that. It was definitely just a love story between two human beings and it was just t- time to tell his story.
0: Mm-hmm. Do we get to have more M.M. from you in the future?
3: Yes, and actually I haven't said so before, but I'm doing a new series, a three-book series. Hopefully they're going to be loosely interconnected standalones, but if they get too tightly woven, then they're going to be not standalones. <laughs> but I feel the middle book is going to be an M.M. book because I have six characters who are kind of the primary in in this series, and two of them will get their own book in the middle.
0: That's Great. very cool. So sometime in the next, uh, whenever.
3: <laughs> the next millennium of time, yes. <laughs> well hopefully, yeah, I'm trying to get them out this year. I just, I don't, I have to see if I can get them out really quickly, or if they're too tied together, like they need to be you know, published quickly, or if I can put a little bit of space between them, we'll have to see. I'm kind of a slow, I used to be a faster writer, I'm a little bit slower now, so. Well, slash lazy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you see more being written in the universe where Max and Silas are?
3: A lot of readers have asked that too because they, they do love this character so much. And I always say never say never as far as what could come later. If I feel their story is completely told, then they usually know. Then usually that's I feel it's done. I did have a flicker of an idea, the, something for Max and Silas, but it was really... I'm hesitant to even like talk about, or not talk about it, but to like look into it because it was so, it was heartbreaking. It was even more heartbreaking. I was like, oh my gosh, these guys have already been through so much. I'm like, do I really want to take them down that path? And then like, so I don't know. We'll have to see. But like, (laughs) so for right now, they're happy and maybe they should just stay happy. (laughs) They deserve it.
0: Do you have favorite tropes to work with uh, that, that kind of, you know, make up your brand of storytelling?
3: I don't know, I, I guess you could say like the super broken character, <laughs> the trope, then like, uh, I, okay, one thing I do have though, I don't know if it's a trope, but one of my characters in every single novel I've ever written, one or both, is an artist of some kind. Be that um, a tattoo artist, a dancer, Silas is a piano player, I have blown glass artists, I have, let's see, violinists, I photographers. The reason is I feel art is kind of like the bridge in between like the physical world that we live in and the kind of like unknown world beyond. This might sound really strange, but like I feel like art is how we can express ourselves as a soul rather than as a body and a brain and chemicals. So I feel like if you're gonna write about love, which is also an expression of the soul I feel instead of just a body reaction, then it makes sense to me to have someone express that through art as well, that makes sense. So I always have an artist I think one book I don't have an artist, but he's a construction worker, he builds things. That's that's an art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: There's so an extension that, there.
3: And I really like how I I can sometimes start with the art and then the story can go from there. So that it helps me as a writer as well to like to figure out what it is, what what method of art I'm going to be exploring it through.
0: And the piano playing really comes through here because in a lot of ways to me that piano playing was the first flicker where they're like "Mm, yeah maybe there's something more here that we can explore because I think I said in the review as I was trying to put it to a trope they're kind of enemies first and then they kind of get this truce and then it's friends to lovers
3: (laughs) yeah enemies to friends to lovers yeah yeah that's true yeah and he's uh oh yeah because the piano playing because of the the bohemian rhapsody scene is that what you mean yeah yeah
0: (laughs) I mean, a lot, a lot of things happened right there, and it all kind of came together yeah. because of the piano playing and the music.
3: Yeah, and Eddie was a, a big key factor in that as well because, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even – I hadn't really thought of it that way. I was mostly thinking of Silas as a piano player as far as, like, how he's trying to get his emotions out a little bit by doing that. But, yeah, that was a key moment for them where they kind of really – and they came together because of the choice of song as well, I think. And, mm-hmm.
0: It's hard to go wrong with Bohemian Rhapsody, though. Really, (laughs) cannot go wrong. (laughs) So, what's coming up immediately next for you?
3: So, the first book, fingers crossed, in that new series will be next. Um, It's going to be called The Girl and the Love Song, and this is gonna. This series will start with the characters in high school, their last, their senior year of high school, and kind of carry them through into their early to mid twenties. Each book will have that same kind of time lapse in it i guess and so yeah so that's next that's that it's going to be hopefully in the end of april at this point but again i'm not setting deadlines because you know life is kind of hectic and crazy right now and so we'll just have to take it one day at a time and see but that's going to be my next project yeah (laughs) excellent
0: and how can people keep up with you online to find out about all the news that's yet to come
3: So I have a, my website is emmascottwrites.com and that's probably the best place to see what books I have out there right currently. And then my, I'm trying to work on adding a blog feature or the blog feature is there. I need to actually type words into the blog (laughs) (laughs) and I can start give updates and stuff. Or you can find me on Facebook. My reader group on Facebook actually is probably a good place. Um, It's called Emma's Entourage. And that's where I tend to give everybody the news first. It feels like my little family my internet family. So I, I tend to put the news there first and then it scatters from there.
0: <laughs> very cool. We will link up to all of that in our show notes so people can find it as well as the the books that we've talked about. Emma, it's been so awesome talking to you and learning more about Someday Someday. I look forward to reading more from you.
3: No, thank you so much. And so thank you so much for having me too. I just, I'm so honored and I'm so glad you loved the book. I was, it's it's pretty special to me. So yeah, so I'm very happy. <laughs>
1: This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com.
0: And thanks again to Emma for taking some time to talk about Someday Someday. I'm really looking forward to reading some other MM romances from her because I really like her brand of bringing two rather broken people together and really strengthening them through the love.
1: All right. I think that'll do it for this week's show. Coming up next week in episode 240, we've got Claire London. She is, of course, the author of this month's book club pick, Romancing the Rough Diamond. As you said, this book is
0: just an utter delight, and it was really fun talking to Claire about it to learn more about the book
1: and the romancing the series in general. Remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part
0: of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening.